Snap Studios. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so in sixth grade at Sanford Elementary School in Sanford, Michigan, I started looking around, looking around the classroom, the lunchroom, the school bus. I started putting two and two together, seeing something I'd never noticed before. See, all the cool dudes, they had a gimmick. They had a thing, a something. Corey Nelson sported his leather jacket with the Hell's Angels insignia, said his uncle gave it to him. The girls love Corey. Jeff Shane carried around an endless supply of chocolates that he would give to some kids and not give to others. The girls loved Jeff. Marty Raynard. Marty just flicked out his pearl-handled comb, let it catch the light just right, and pulled it through his tremendous red mane. The sixth grade was a buzz about Marty Raynard and his comb. I needed something. Not a comb. Not chocolates, not a jacket. I needed something cool, something new, and I needed it bad. Then it happened. My dad had just gotten a job in the new field of computer-aided design. And his first day on the job, they gave him a cutting-edge, just-developed, top-of-the-line, personal microcomputer. Me and my brothers were in awe. Understand, this was back in the day. There was no such thing as cell phones and Commodore 64s and iPads, none of this. This computer was the precursor to all. And through some weird wrinkle in the universe, my father had one. It was about as large as a men's size 13 shoe. And my dad told us to never, ever, never, ever, ever touch it when he wasn't around. So, when he left for work one day, I took it to school for show and tell. Now, this computer thingy, it didn't really do anything I could understand. It would graph numbers or plot points or something like that. I didn't give two craps about that. But the innovation, the real genius of the machine was that if you knew which button to press, it would make sounds. Not just any sounds, computer-type sounds. Let me explain. See, mine was the first generation weaned on Star Trek. TV and newspapers were always going on about the glorious future of robotics right around the corner. So when I told everyone that my father worked in a top-secret lab dedicated to creating artificial intelligence, they were skeptical because there was no such thing in rural Michigan. Skeptical until I pulled out the proof. The microcomputer. It was impressive with the buttons and the lights and the screens and the stuff. The oohs and the ahs. 
this device. Listen, fellow sixth graders, the technology is such that it can only respond to my voice and computerese talk, but this device in my hand is the first artificial brain. I gave the toggle a little push. Franklin, how are you today? Fantastic, Franklin. I too am well. What's that? Oh, yes. Well, I can understand what you are saying. I'd be happy to translate for some of the fem- I, I, some of the people here. I could translate. From that point on, Corey could have his jacket, Jeff could have his chocolates, Marty his silly comb, because I had the only thing that mattered. A top secret, artificially intelligent computer mind. Kids ask all kinds of questions. Who's the coolest girl in school? Why, Jamie Dre's, of course. Who's the coolest guy? <laughs> Thanks, computer, but why don't you pick someone else? You know, it's kind of embarrassing. This was working out great until Corey Nelson got angry. I had something even better than this Hell's Angels jacket. He wasn't having it. Hey, he's just making things up. That thing can't talk. I am not. Franklin, am I making things up? But right then, Corey lunged at the machine. It fell from my hands. It crashed against the floor. And the lights went off. Franklin. Wake up, Franklin. Franklin! I snatched the machine up. I cradled it like a baby. You did this. You killed Franklin. The sixth grade was in an uproar. I took the computer home and put him right back on my father's dresser where it belonged. No, I didn't get a beating. The computer was fine. I just had to hit the on switch. But I never brought Franklin back to school. Because I figured it didn't take a computer mind to know that the jig was up. Today, on Snap Judgment, from WNYC, we proudly present Artificial Intelligence. intelligence. Amazing stories from real people coming face-to-face with the ones and the zeros. My name is Glenn Washington. Please, hit control, alt, delete, backspace, forward. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. going to kick things off in the first place you think of when you think of artificial intelligence. That's right. Knox City, Texas. Population 1219 on the way to the West Texas Plains. Snap Judgments. Julia DeWitt has the story. 
Lyndon Beatty was a little boy who never knew what it was like to talk to other kids. I was only allowed to visit family. Anything could kill me. If I became sick, I mean, I was going to die. Lyndon was a kind of real-life bubble boy. He was born with something called polycystic kidney disease. Among other things, it meant that he was extremely susceptible to illness. Everyday germs, flu germs, cold germs, they could kill him. This is Lyndon's mom, Sherry. If he had a cold or runny nose or anything, you just couldn't come in. I mean, everybody knew the rules. If you had been sick, think you're going to be sick, anything. You just could not come in the house. Most kids with Lyndon's disease die in the first 14 days of their lives. So it was kind of a miracle that Lyndon survived it all. But everything changed when Lyndon was seven. He got a kidney transplant. And with his health stabilized, now the question was how can Lyndon live a normal life? And a key part of any normal childhood is going to school with other kids. So his parents took a deep breath and sent him off to his first day of school. I, I mean, I never seen, seen anyone, you know, my size really, except for my two brothers. I mean, I never communicated with anyone outside my family. Lyndon's little brother Sheldon had told him all about school. But on his first day, he still knew basically nothing about what it would be like. Most kids, they'd be nervous. But Lyndon? So I was like, okay, bye, Mom, bye. And I went outside, I made new friends, and it was amazing just to play with them, run up and down, you know, climb the jungle gym, right, uh, swing, go down slides. It was amazing to do that. I was worried sick. I thought I was going to have to pick Lyndon up by noon because it was just going to be too much. No, I picked Sheldon up at noon because he was literally sick from worrying about Lyndon. Over the next several years, it became clear that Lyndon could have a normal life. He still had to get regular lab workups, and he couldn't play on all the sports teams. But he was a hit at school. He had friends, good grades. After an irregular childhood, Lyndon was now just one of the kids. Then, in eighth grade, after seven years in school, Lyndon started getting sick. Little things, a cold, a flu, but it was always something. And then right at the end of the school year, Lyndon got some news. His body was rejecting his transplanted kidney. We wanted him to go through the eighth grade graduation ceremony. So we did that on Friday night, got up real early Saturday morning, and we left for Dallas. And we didn't come back home till the end of August. We spent that summer of 2010 fighting that rejection. The doctors in Dallas pumped Lyndon with drugs to stop his immune system from attacking his good kidney. But nothing worked. At the end of the summer, when everyone else was getting ready to start high school, the doctors removed Lyndon's transplanted kidney, and Lyndon went home to Knox City. He went back on nightly dialysis, and his immune system was wiped out from all the immunosuppressants. He would not be starting freshman year with his friends. I can only imagine them going to high school, you know, tubing down the river, getting their driver's license, little things like that that teenagers are supposed to do. But now I never got to communicate with them whatsoever. It's tough to describe 
when you were one of the most socially interactive kids at the school and then all of a sudden that is pulled away from you. Lyndon tried to reach out. He tried to talk to people through his brother Sheldon, but his friends were now at the high school campus and Sheldon was still in middle school. And the longer it went on, the darker it got for Lyndon. I woke up in the morning, I gloomily walked around. All I wanted to do was find some way for me to go to school. But there was no way. And I was just depressed. I mean, I would wake up and just kind of coil up on the couch and have no reason to do anything. I mean, I really didn't care if I died. Lyndon's parents were absolutely desperate. There had to be some way to get Lyndon near his friends again. Then one morning in his office, Lyndon's dad, Lewis, got a call. When he went home for lunch, he told Sherry what he'd learned. I looked at him like he had lost his mind completely. A robot? (laughs) It's like, no, I thought he was joking at first. And I was like, you are kidding me. Just stop. I mean, it's not funny to tease like that. He said, no, seriously. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. I mean, I couldn't say yes enough times. But that's said, it could happen. No, don't get too hopped. We don't know. Within two weeks, I had a robot. Greetings, human. I come in peace. This guy had come by the special ed department with this robot called a Vigo. I am Vigo. It wasn't designed for kids like Lyndon specifically, but for anyone that needed a proxy. Like, say, if someone's working remotely. It's not like a walking, talking, like, C-3PO robot. I don't actually talk. It's basically just Skype on wheels. There's a screen at the top that shows Lyndon and a camera so that Lyndon can see what the robot can see from his laptop at home. It's shiny white, very impressive for its simplicity. Lyndon could maneuver it remotely using the arrow keys. The night before his first day back at school, Lyndon was so excited he could barely sleep. He got up like at five or six that morning and waited. He didn't have to go to school till nine. (laughs) Mom made me get dressed, but uh, I put on a shirt. Didn't put on pants. Put on some boxers. They They aren't gonna see my pants anyway. He got set up at his desk, logged on, and there on his screen, gathered around the robot, was his entire school staring back at him. It was the first time anyone saw it. It's like kind of, whoa, whoa, whoa. They hadn't seen Lyndon for a really long time, some of them for years. And there he was. Or there he was on a screen. At first, nobody really knew what to do. What do you say to a robot? kid by the actually a senior by the name of Austin Valamont, he came up and said, Lyndon, I've missed you so much, and hugged the robot. But then I turned and ran into the locker, very clumsy with it. And then it dawned on Lyndon. He'd never been to the school before. He didn't even know where his classes were. Also, he was pretty bad at driving the thing. Running the walls, lockers. Chairs, girls, boys, mainly girls, but uh, that was probably not by accident. 
The high school is actually just one hallway with no stairs, which worked in Lyndon's favor. They put signs with each teacher's name on the classroom doors so Lyndon could find his way around. But the robot still had its limitations. Like, without arms, it couldn't open doors. So Lyndon, resilient kid that he is, came up with a fix for that. I just ran myself into the door. I back up all the way to the hallway and then just ran and then just have a big knock. Boosh! And it's like, Lyndon's here! First day, that first class was just like, it was kind of boring because all he did was lecture, so I logged on to the internet. So what other kinds of things could you get away with with the robot? Why didn't I get away with the robot? I could just mute it and go grab something to eat. And then, like, during class, I'd be, like, eating crackers. Um, um. And also, also in that time, I'm on ESPN.com reading, reading about the Mavericks. Being back at school wasn't even really about school anyway. Just being able to be there, wheel between classes, while his parents noticed an overnight change in Lyndon. He was still sitting at home, but the robot made him feel like he was at school with his friends again, gave him a reason to get up in the morning, and a chance to do things like talk about the football game last night and joke around in the halls. They would, they would play jokes on it, and they were, it was just kind of prideful jokes, just anything they would play, they would do to me. One time they'd stuck it in a locker. Luckily, you could hear the ramming. <laughs> little, little stuff like that, it's really fun. They don't mean it in a bad way. They're just having fun with Lyndon and not a robot, which it is a robot, but they're having fun with Lyndon. Lyndon could also do things that other kids couldn't do, like that prank that everyone dreams of, sneaking into school at night. Turn them on like I do in the morning. I ended up contorting the robot enough to open a fridge. It was like amazing what them teachers have in there. Junk food. I mean, it was like what what the, you would expect like the freshmen to have. It's like, oh my gosh, teachers. Teachers say that's bad for us. Look at their fridge. And when Lyndon got really courageous, even tried to talk to girls. That didn't go too well, but... I tried and really didn't succeed. What did you do? I've just tried to flirt with them, but it didn't really... It's it's better when you're there. You need to be there. But things got better with girls. In fact, at the end of his sophomore year, Lyndon was asked to prom. I think I was the only sophomore that went. She was the best-looking girl there. I'm telling y'all right now, she was the best-looking girl there. Did she ask you? Did she yeah, ask she... No, she asked Lyndon. She asked Lyndon, not 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 the robot. Lyndon. She asked me through the robot. She's like, "Can you come?" Like, not robot. It's like, "Okay, you want the robot?" It's like, "No, I want you." It's like, oh, you know, of of course, you know. It's like, okay, I'm gonna go to prom. Mom, I'm going to prom. <laughs> Whenever there was a chance for Lyndon to do things like a normal kid, his parents let him do it, even if there were some risks. And the school got on board, too. They made extra accommodations for Lyndon so that he could actually go to prom in person. David had the prom outside because he could be out in the open air. He just couldn't be confined in indoor spaces with a lot of people. Do you think he had that feeling that she was, like, being nice to him? 
You know, I it wasn't like a girlfriend kind of thing. I mean, it was more of a friend. But heck, he was game for anything. He was like, hey, I've got the cutest girl in town taking me to the prom. I'm going. Who cares? cares? (laughs) The next year, Lyndon's junior year, he got up the courage to ask a girl to prom himself. Lyndon was psyched, but... Two days before prom, I ended up developing peritonitis. It is a, an infection in my dialysis tube. The doctors in Dallas told Lyndon's mom, get him down here. But his mom and dad said, No, you don't, you don't understand. He, he has a prom in two days. It's like, okay, we're going to start him on this medicine. It's like, as soon as prom is over, you're, you get him here. It's like, I don't care if we're down there by 2 a.m. We, we are going to prom. So you went, you went to prom with the infection? Yes. Whoa. I was walking probably sideways and a little crooked, but still I got to walk up with her. I rode in the car, and it was very fun to do. My dad said, it's like, okay, Lynn, we, we really need to go. It's like, okay. And I told, I told her bye. We just left for, we just left for Dallas. Straight there. I think we stopped at Dairy Queen, got some fries. Is that strange going from this, like, teenager thing to the hospital? Probably for, quote, normal kids with good health. Yeah, yes, that, that, that would be um, weird for them. But to me, it's completely normal. It's my life, and I've lived it, and that, that's my normal. I'm just going to tackle life as I go. Now in Lyndon's senior year, the robot stays docked in the closet. He's still waiting for a transplant, but his health has gotten good enough so that he can actually physically go to school. I'm going the whole nine yards. I'm doing everything they are doing. I am having myself a senior year. I am doing senior skip day. I'm going to the lake that day. I'm going into work because I can't. But I will do everything in my power to do everything my classmates are doing. My grades are down, but I'm still making A's and B's and everything. But my grades are... No, it's important to me than my, than my social life I'm having right now. Just don't tell my parents that. On my last day in Knox City, I went to a high school football game with the babies. Football games for them are a family affair. Sheldon plays for the Knox City Greyhounds. Number 15, Sheldon Lyndon, who is fanatical about sports, is the announcer for all the home games. We would like to welcome our guests. While the other boys get ready to play and cheer from the stands, Lyndon sits up in the plywood announcer's box. His running commentary echoes out over the field. Oh! Tackle made by nearly the entire Greyhounds! I have to head back to Dallas, so I leave Lyndon in the booth to finish out the game. Alone with Mike in hand, yelling back out over the stands filled with his friends as the sun sets over the prairie.
Much love to the whole baby family. Live your life, live your life, live your life. Original score and sound design by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Julia DeWitt. When Snap returns, someone fights the AI by taking power into their own hands and one of her own is sucked into a video game. Kind of like what happened in Tron. When Snap Judgment, the AI episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the AI episode. Today, we're exploring people facing off against an alien intelligence of our own creation. And for our next story, Snap Stephanie Fu brings us into the heart of the battle. A few years ago, Colin was a guy in his early 20s who was kind of broke. Freelance, and, and it was just me working on my own, and that's not fun, and you end up just sitting in a cold room all day, and you're hungry, and you're getting the $2 sandwiches at Safeway. So Colin did what you do if you're a broke 20-something living in Silicon Valley. He started applying to tech companies. And he hit the jackpot and scored an interview at Rumble Space, which, by the way, is not the real name of the company. Yeah, it's uh, Rumble Space is a social network, a famous one where you can post pictures and talk to your friends. And, uh, and you can find like-minded people, for better or for worse. Colin was going to be working in the security department, keeping dirty content off the site. Things like violent or pornographic images. How it worked was, RumbleSpace had a database of phrases, images, videos that had been previously flagged as inappropriate. So if these inappropriate things were uploaded again, RumbleSpace's software would detect them and automatically delete them. So I'm the the human side of this automatic tool, making sure that uh, RumbleSpace is deleting the right pages. It's not going haywire. Sounded easy enough. Plus, he got to work at Rumble Space, where hot young people sat on bouncy balls instead of chairs. Ping pong tables were everywhere. And it's just food everywhere. Seemed that was worth it. I I could have been paid $5 an hour and still done that. But the job turned out to be a little more complicated than Colin had thought. It wasn't just like clicking, yes, that's a naked person, delete it. No, that's a buffalo. Keep it. There was a really big gray area that the computer just couldn't really handle because it didn't understand context. It was constantly a game of telling the computer, yes, you're right, but it's a little more complicated. So, for instance, there was was an image that was reposted millions of times that was a, a young boy, naked, I don't know why he was naked, and there was like a a puppy biting his penis, which the computer has as bestiality. And this is a complex issue, because deciding what to do with pictures like these was tied into RumbleSpace's terms and conditions, which you agree to when you join the site. And the terms and conditions say things like, you cannot upload pornographic images. So Colin had to figure out, okay, the little boy's naked, but is it pornographic? 
it wasn't being shared because it was uh, intriguing or sexy. It was being shared because it's funny. So since it was just funny, Colin just deleted the picture. If it had been pornographic, he could have deleted the user. If it looked like the user was spreading child pornography, the user's information would actually be sent to the government. And yes, Colin did have to see that kind of content every day. This one uh, video and, and screenshots from the video started getting reposted thousands and thousands of times. And it was a, a child abuse video. And we ended up having to see that a lot. Those I had to normally take a deep breath and go get my eighth cup of coffee, a free coffee. The first couple of weeks of the job, I would I would definitely come home and just sort of sit down and have to process for an hour or two. I would just come home and I'd lie down, face down on the bed, uh, or just kind of sit there and sigh a lot. After work, I would be sitting watching TV and then just it would just pop into my head like uh, just out of nowhere. The images would sort of just flash. I had a few nightmares. And so that was sort of frightening because it was like, my brain's generating this. And I, I sort of came to terms with, you know, if I did have a nightmare about it, it would be the same thing as if you were looking at uh, pictures of puppies every day. And of course you would have dreams about puppies. And of course you would see that stuff when you close your eyes. So it, I sort of justified it that way. It, I don't think it made me pessimistic about all of humanity. I just realized that when people are awful, they're more awful than you imagined before. Colin started to feel isolated. Like, if people would ask him at parties, what do you do? He had a hard time answering that question. If he answered honestly, sometimes it wouldn't go over well. Like, at one party. These two girls, just, they came up to me and they said, never talk about that stuff again and you single-handedly ruined the party. I just was like, I did not make, I did not gain any fans tonight. And if Colin's tone sounds a little jokey to be dealing with this sort of material, that's because that's how he and his coworkers were able to deal with the content they were presented with. Well, a lot of the times we would be in meetings and you'd be in a room with, uh, you know, 15 people with the laptop plugged in, projecting horrible stuff uh, on the walls. We'd be in a conference room, so we'd have to cover the windows for other employees. And after it's on the wall for like a few minutes, something clicks and you take a step back and you realize how absurd it is that this has been on the wall for so long and you're treating it so normal. One person would laugh and the whole room would just fall apart. And meanwhile, there's like the worst image on the internet on the, on the wall. Uh, I mean, that was the best way to survive. You had to, you had to laugh about it. With time, Colin kind of got used to seeing the images every day, but he couldn't get used to the idea that somewhere, the evil things in the pictures were taking place in real life, and he couldn't do anything about it. When you see that stuff so often, you feel a lot more helpless about stopping this stuff. You never really seemed like you were winning the fight. You would tackle one weird image one week, and the next week it would be 10 more completely weirder and worse images. 
To make matters worse, the computer often wasn't smart enough to pick out all of the bad guys. But even though Colin spotted them sometimes, he couldn't delete the pictures unless the computer caught them first. He actually couldn't do very much at all without first consulting a chain of his superiors. That really got under my skin. It was annoying because you knew the AI had limitations, like it didn't know when someone was, was bad. It's going to take engineers a long time to create a creepy radar for computers. I think uh, as a human, you have a lot better understanding of uh, context. So there was a huge rape case in the media, and um, people were going after the rapists on Rumble Space. And we had to defend them, and I didn't want to, and I didn't see the point of it. I, I thought, why not just delete their pages? Instead of deleting the accounts of the perpetrators, we had to delete the accounts of angry moms who were writing to them, threatening them. They were threatening with uh, cutting off their their junk, and and, uh, that technically was uh, an abuse of the site's terms and conditions. So I had to act as an extension of the AI, Um, so we kicked off a lot of moms that week. Colin didn't think that was fair, and... He wasn't going to put up with it anymore. And so I started taking action on my own one day. It started with some trolls making fun of this um, mentally disabled woman. They were from all over the world, and they were coming together to make fun of this woman. And uh, I started deleting them, and they would come back the next day, and I'd delete them again. It was amazing because I was watching them all frantically trying to figure out what was happening if one of them was reporting the other one and they just turned on on each other. Rachel, you were never our friend. I hate you. It felt good. It actually felt like I was contributing to the health of the internet. So yeah, then from, from then on, I would do the work I was supposed to do and then I'd sort of allocate a few hours a day to doing my own little detective work. Here's a racist group. Bye bye. You're gone. Posting children's beauty pageant photos. You're gone. Dog fight groups. <laughs> You're gone. He's a diaper fetishist. Okay, bye. Sometimes he even deleted people who seemed like they could be terrible. Weird, creepy guys who hadn't done anything technically wrong yet. They had the possibility of, you know, going further to the dark side. So you were like trying to preempt their evil. Yeah, I was yeah a little minority reportish. Um. <laughs> but when you went rogue and you were like, "You're bad, you're bad, you're bad," like that's your definition of bad. I mean, that mentally disabled woman would have kept getting made fun of if I hadn't stepped in and done my vigilante work. I think, uh, yeah, I did a small amount of good. I think for the most part, I deleted people who deserved it. Colin could have lobbied for and filled out paperwork for each individual case. But what kind of vigilante would he be if he got bogged down by bureaucracy? With Batman, I'm sure he could have accomplished a lot by lobbying and using his money for political, (laughs) uh, you know, starting a PAC. But of course, Batman doesn't do that. Because he doesn't want to fix the broken system, he wants to bypass it entirely to enact justice. Because he's friggin' Batman. Except, what happens when Batman gets unmasked? Alarms were going off in another side of the company because I was in sort of a part of the site that I shouldn't have been in. 
so my boss sat me down and he told me, whatever you're doing, you're doing it wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. You are all over the, the damn site. The job that you're supposed to be doing, we're looking at your numbers and they're, they're really, really low. <laughs> like really low. I don't know why they didn't fire me. Yeah, after, after that meeting, um, the chance to renew my, my contract came up and I just, I didn't take it. I, I didn't really want to be there anymore. And uh, I don't know, I just, I sort of realized I'd done everything I could do. But even after Colin left, he couldn't stop thinking about the bad guys out there, on the news, on the internet. After I left, I kept finding pages. And, uh, you know, before I knew it, I'd have 30, 40 tabs open in my browser and emailing my old coworkers and being like, hey, delete this guy. Like, I couldn't stop. Like, it was, it was kind of in there. I just wanted to keep it. I just wanted to keep the, uh, the site safe. And not just the site, even bigger than that. Um, I was out uh, having lunch with someone, and I saw this guy walking behind these teenage girls, aiming his iPhone at their butts. And I was like, I'd seen a lot of photos like that on the site. And, and I just shout, I was just, I don't know what happened. I just shouted from my seat, hey, stop that. And, uh, and he looked at me and I sort of like pointed my eyes and pointed at him like, I see you and said, stop it. And I sort of walked out and kind of watched him go down the street. I almost wanted to keep going after him and, and like grab his phone and throw it in the sewer, but I, I didn't. Why not? Why didn't I go assault the stranger? <laughs> I, um... <laughs> in the office and being separated from these ne'er-do-wells by a computer screen and thousands of lines of code, you're definitely, you feel safe. But yeah, out in the, out in the real world, you can't just go about being uh, sort of a self-appointed. You can't be a hero all the time. Thank you, Stephanie Fu. And thank you as well to all of our friends on Rumble Space. And when we return, virtual Stephanie Fu. Oh, yes. When Snap Judgment, the AI episode continues, stay tuned. to the snap my name is glenn washington on today's ai artificial intelligence episode we're diving into stories from real people who've seen the soul of the machine and they've returned to offer warning we sent snap judgment stephanie fu on assignment to virtual reality My dad and I didn't have much in common when I was growing up, but we did share one hobby, computer games. We'd play games together where we'd decapitate monsters with names like Putrid Defiler. Now you die. So when I started playing The Sims, he didn't get it. The Sims, for those who don't know, is kind of like playing with a hyper-realistic dollhouse with many people or Sims living their everyday lives. 
I already have to wash dishes and pay bills in real life, my dad would say. I don't need to do it on a computer game. And he'd go back to looting villages. But that's just why I liked it. I liked controlling these little people, making them do grown-up things, getting jobs, making money. Okay, let's be honest, I was 12. Mostly I just liked to make them woohoo, which is what it's called when two sims have intimate relations. (laughs) I also liked doing things like buying leopard print sofas and starving my children to death, which sounds heartless, but I'm going to blame my behavior on the game. Sims were almost impossible to feel personal affection for. The Sims AI was pretty terrible back then, and it was hard to actually like your Sims because they were so dumb. You just want them to cook breakfast and they'd set themselves on fire. If you didn't tell them to go to the bathroom on time, they'd pee all over the living room. And so after I started to think the funnest part of the Sims was manipulating them to commit suicide, I threw The Sims away and didn't play the game again. And it wasn't long after that that I stopped playing computer games entirely. As I entered adulthood, I learned what actually being a grown-up was all about. It was about making money and maximizing productivity. I work a lot. Sometimes I don't have time to eat, let alone play video games. In fact, I probably would have never played the game again, unless work asked me to. Snap assigned me a story about The Sims for this episode. While I downloaded the newest iteration of the game, The Sims 3, I read the game's message boards. I was disappointed. A lot of the users were saying The Sims were still super dumb. But I did get a little rush when the game started and I heard the classic, kitschy theme song. One of the first things I noticed with the new Sims is I could make a Sim that looked like an Asian girl. And I could even give her an outfit with clothes really similar to ones I have in my own closet. So I decided to make a Sim me, a Sim Stephanie. When it came time to build her personality, my boyfriend helped me pick traits similar to my own. Sim Stephanie is ambitious, very excitable, and of course, a workaholic. One of her life goals is to be a journalist. And then I saw that The Sims had free will now. There was this slider where you could control the amount of free will they possessed, so they could be more independent and do things like use the bathroom without you telling them to. I gave Sim Stephanie the maximum amount of free will. Then I made a Sim boyfriend for her, who resembled my own boyfriend. The first thing I did was I suggested Sim Stephanie flirt with my boyfriend, Sim. And thankfully, they started getting really into each other. And then, right before they had their first kiss, my Sim excused herself, ran into the next room, clapped her hands and did a happy dance. Before returning to make out. And this is super embarrassing, but the thing is... I actually did do that in real life, before me and my boyfriend's actual first kiss. And then Sim Stephanie continued to do happy dances about many things. Getting a phone call. Bedtime. Her waffles. I laughed, 
but a dark, shameful part of me recognized her behavior as familiar. I started to get self-conscious. Is this how people saw me? I look ridiculous. I mean, God, waffles are super good, but I, I think maybe I need to calm down about them. Then, Sim Stephanie got her first journalism job. She wanted to be successful so badly that after she came home, she'd still write articles late into the night. But it got to the point where she'd be writing at midnight, and then she'd be miserable and exhausted all of the next day. She'd show up late for work. She'd take it out on her boyfriend. I tried to get her to stop working and go to sleep, but she wouldn't listen to me. So I'd start yelling at the screen, What is wrong with you? You are screwing yourself over! Until I realized, wait a second, I did this in real life yesterday. This was getting creepy, like some meta-nightmare where I had to watch a bird's-eye view of all of my own flaws. In a manic moment of paranoia, I wondered if somehow a chain of meta-meta-juju existed, where perhaps there was an uber-Stephanie watching me and facepalming herself over all the stupid stuff I do every day, yelling, No, no, don't eat those cheese fries, you will break out, no- Ugh. Eventually, though, Sim Stephanie fell into a groove, balancing work and life. And her relationship with her boyfriend actually started to resemble my own, in this really comforting way. She'd work late, but since he was less work-obsessed, he'd play guitar into the night, serenading her and making her snacks. I kind of felt like I appreciated my real boyfriend more, watching it. But what was the deal here? Everyone on the message board said that The Sims 3 AI was terrible. So I went back and reread the comments from the disappointed users. None of the parents got a single promotion. My Sims will spend a lot of time woohooing, like three or four times a day. I discovered my Sims flirt with people who aren't their partner when I'm not controlling them, unhappy face. Sims have always had problems surviving or doing anything without help. The message from the developers is clear. Free will is a very, very bad thing. Control your Sims at all times. And they did. Many of the players took away their Sims' free will. Not really because The Sims 3 AI was bad, because it was so good. They saw themselves in their Sims, and they didn't want themselves to fail. I thought there was something incredibly dark about that. I don't believe in fate myself. I like to believe that I control my own destiny, so I thought I was above that. I wouldn't take away Sim Stephanie's free will. Until one night. Sim Stephanie had been working really hard for several days, and her happiness levels were low. She desperately wanted to have fun. She started playing computer games to relax for a couple hours. But I knew that if she completed this one task by tonight, she could get a promotion and a huge raise tomorrow. I thought, we could really use the extra cash. I thought, I'd like her to be a little more productive. And that little slider was just begging to be slid. So I turned off her free will, and I forced her to finish her work. Sim Stephanie did what she was told, but her happiness plummeted. She sat there, 
resentful, exhausted, miserable. And I knew exactly how she felt. I felt like I just punched myself in the gut. I had taken away Sim Stephanie's free will as punishment for playing computer games. And I was playing computer games right now. I was supposed to be so much smarter than Sim Stephanie. Sim Stephanie stayed up all night once because she couldn't find the bed. But even she knew that finding the next big story was not worth sabotaging her own happiness. Even Sim Stephanie knew that she didn't need any more fancy couches. Sim Stephanie knew how to be a human, knew how to be a happy grown-up, better than I did. She, I, we know now that happiness, it comes first. And sometimes it's okay to just relax, maybe even play a computer game. Thank you, Stephanie Fu. Original score by Leon Morimoto. It's happened. A full hour snap into the Matrix. But don't worry. There's plenty more where that came from. Full episodes, pictures, movies, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. You want special stuff? Special stories and such? Just like Snap Judgment on Facebook, on Spotify. Follow Snap Judgment on the Twitter. Snap was produced by myself and a hive artificially enhanced cybernetic symbiotes. Please say hello to the Uber producer himself, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat McCity Miller cannot be cloned. Stephanie Fu has another tinier Stephanie Fu of her own. An assessment doesn't have any other an assessments. Julia DeWitt can out-wrestle any supercomputer. Renzo Gorio hypnotizes laptops. Jasmine Aguilera feels pain. The beats are created, but he is not. Leon Morimoto, Lordina, is not an artificially created subroutine. And you know, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could have no friends. No friends at all until your father brings you home a brand new friend in a box. And when you turn her on, your new friend could get up, look at you, walk out of the door, then talk bad about you behind your back, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.